Welcome to the True Crime Squad. I'm Christy Brower here with my sister, co-host, and partner in crime, Katie Weaver. Hey, Katie. Hello. How's it going? It's going good. This is our True Crime of Palooza tonight, kicking out two shows in one night because uh, right other busy busyness going on. So yeah, we're just we're true crime all the time right now. We we are true crime all the time. That is true. That is very true. You're headed off to see your kids and so we gotta get some stuff done ahead of time which you know lately this summer we have been like last minuteers we always are in the summertime and Mm -hmm. then we get like really good about like pre-recording in advance on in the winter and then summer Mm -hmm. we're just like (laughs) it's the heat it addles everybody's brain i I, really i don't think it's hard to see why people like go crazy and do wild things in the summertime i right i i do kind of get it like yeah Things are just not as on in the summertime mm-hmm. when it's hot. I agree. Yep. I agree. But we do have a lot of true crime for you tonight. So we do. Or today or whenever it is that you whenever are you're watching, watching or listening to this. So whenever that is, that is great. But Katie, you're going to kick us off with some WTF news. Oh, Yeah. If you've ever lived in an apartment building, you know that the apartment noise can be oppressive, bothersome, Mm -hmm. upsetting. Uh, It can be easy to feel like you're being targeted by your neighbors, like they're making noise just specifically to upset you or piss you off. Uh, Not everyone really should live in apartment buildings. Mm Mm-hmm. I've had many clients over the years who just cannot do the noise of an apartment building. And I get it. I can't either. Uh, but noise in apartments and condos and things have led to many skirmishes over the years. Ooh. But this one takes it to a brand new low. Uh-oh. This is Zooming Lee. And he has been arrested uh, in Florida uh, in the Hillsborough County area for an unbelievable crime. Apparently, a couple moved in above him a little more than a year ago, and almost immediately, noise complaints uh, started. Mm -hmm. And they said they have taken many steps. When they moved in there, they were pregnant with their first baby. Um, And then, you know, he, Zooming, uh, complained of noise quite a bit. And they did a lot of things like put a lot of rugs down. And bought house slippers to wear in the house so they could step more lightly and are very careful with their, uh, you know, the noise. But the things he's complaining about are like toilet lids closing and doors closing and things like that. Just regular living stuff. It's not like he's, they're partying all night. They're just living in their house. Yeah. Well, earlier this summer, there started to be a very weird chemically smell both in the apartment and right outside the apartment, really intently, intensely. And also, they started experiencing some symptoms in the apartment of feeling dizzy, 
and nauseous and discombobulated. And so they decided to see what the hell was going on out in the hallway. So the uh, the homeowner or, or the yeah the, the homeowner family they put a concealed camera out uh, in a plant next to the door of their home. Mm-hmm. And that camera caught Mr. Lee injecting something with a needle through a crack in their door. Some kind of a... What? They think a narcotic gas of some sort. This man was a chemistry student until uh, this summer. Oh. uh, In a PhD program at the University of South Florida. So... uh, uh, Umar Abdullah and his family are the family that's uh, in question, and they discovered that he was literally injecting some kind of a, they thought, poison into their home. And so they called the police. They had footage of two different instances that they were able to get on camera of him doing that to their house. Mm-hmm. And he's now been arrested and charged. My God. Yeah. Any idea what it is that? So they did some tests and they tested positive for methadone and hydrocodone. But they think that there was more because uh, during the investigation, an officer touched some of it and he experienced skin irritation and had to receive medical treatment. My God. So according to the New York Times article, Dr. Ryan Marino, he's a medical toxicologist. Uh, he says that liquid methadone is something that people keep in their homes without any adverse effects. He doesn't really think those drugs would have caused the physical symptoms that this couple has had. So they suspect Mm -hmm. that it was more than just that. And they're still trying to figure out exactly what it was. And obviously it was a cocktail of drugs that he'd put together. So they're still working on figuring out exactly what it was. And of course they're... Their baby's almost one, and she's okay, but they are certainly worried about what kind of long-term symptoms she could have uh, right. from from being exposed to whatever this chemical cocktail was. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that the damn That is thing? terrifying. Yeah. Oh yeah. What was he trying Terrif- to do? Kill them? Mm-hmm. Just make them sick? Make them go to bed? Like, move out? think that something in the building was making him sick and they move? I wonder. Did you know that somebody else could have just moved in that was just twice as noisy? Right. There are lots of things you can't help at all. Yeah. Just living in apartment living that you can't you can't avoid all noise. It's just not even possible. Nope. Wow. No, that is very cannot. scary. Yeah, that is something. So, um, yep, Mr. Lee, you are where you belong. My God. Yeah, you are. Wow. Well, with that, I'm going to kick the mic over to you for our main case. Yes. Our main 
case is a combination of a couple of stories that we have talked about to some extent here on the show, but I don't think that we've fully explained the entire story and how these two cases connect to one another. And so what I want to talk about initially is Paul Adams. Paul Adams was an Arizona man who was molesting his daughter. And in 2010, this is in Bisbee, Arizona. In 2010, he reported to the bishop, who is the main clergy of his uh, ward in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or Mormons. He was a Mormon. And he was being counseled, and I'm going to use air quotes, uh, by his bishop because Mormon clergy are untrained. They do not have, they're not um, professional clergy. This particular bishop was actually a family physician, which was a little better than what you frequently get as a bishop in a Mormon church. Was it though? <laughs> Should have been, but it wasn't. So he reports to uh, his bishop in 2010 that he has a problem with pornography and that he is molesting his five-year-old child. The bishop at that time followed Mormon church policy and called what the Mormon church calls their helpline, which is a helpline that is supposed to be guidance for these untrained clergy members. But unfortunately, who this bishop got on the phone was not a counselor or a mental health professional. They were an attorney that were that was employed by the Mormon church. And that attorney uh, told the bishop that he was not to call the police or child welfare or tell anyone what he had been told. When you think about that for a minute, that man was a doctor. And then he was being told by a member of his ward, one of his parishioners, that he is molesting his five-year-old child. And he is being told by an attorney for the Mormon church not to report that to anyone. So unfathomable. It is. So this bishop continued to counsel Paul, which I think is absolutely ridiculous, for another year. He did also bring in Paul's uh, wife, Lisa, hoping that she might do something to protect the children, but she didn't. So he knows now that this man is molesting his daughter, that the mother knows, and he still does nothing. So and the mother this, does nothing. And the mother does nothing. My God. So then this bishop talks to another Mormon bishop. Because I think this man was conflicted by this because... How could he not be? But how could he not do anything? You know? How could you he be was told he had no legal no legal responsibility to report. What about moral responsibility? What about mm -hmm. human responsibility? Mm -hmm. So he tells us also, bit. what about the Hippocratic Oath? I mean, I know they're not actually your patients, but come on, man, seriously. Right. So he, he consults with another bishop. That bishop also calls the church hotline, is again told that they are excused from reporting the abuse to police under what is called in Arizona clergy penitent privilege. So the abuse of this poor child continues for seven more years into her adolescence. And at that, throughout that time, another 
infant child, an infant female is born into this family. And this man is also molesting the infant. Oh, for the love. What Paul Adams was also doing is he was filming this abuse and he was putting it on the internet as child pornography. Oh my God. So eventually Adams is arrested by Homeland Security in 2017 with no help from the Mormon church or any mm -hmm. of the bishops or the mother of these children. Mm -hmm. Law enforcement officials in New Zealand actually discovered these videos online and, you know, did the law enforcement thing to get to Homeland yeah. Security. So Paul Adams was arrested and he killed himself in custody before he stood trial for any of this. Oh, my God. Yeah. So we have that story, which is bad enough in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And we know that this the abuse ended in 2017. Um, these children were actually placed outside of their mother's custody, fortunately. Well, now what's happening is that the, the, the original victim in this case is an adult and has adoptive parents who are assisting her. And they decided that what they needed to do was sue the Mormon church because mm -hmm. it is well documented that the Mormon church knew exactly that this was, had been reported multiple times by more than one clergy member and nothing was done about it. Huh. They brought a suit um, against the Mormon church uh, and also these two bishops and other church members for conspiracy and negligence in not reporting this abuse, right? Sure. Makes sense, don't you think? Mm -hmm. So this case made it all the way to the Supreme Court in Arizona. And they ruled in April, although this wasn't released until June. And we did talk about it when it was released, but I wanted to connect the actual case yeah. to this case. Uh, the Supreme Court of the U.S. state of Arizona ruled that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Mormon Church can refuse to answer questions or turn over any documents. They have all these sealed documents of the actual reporting of this abuse um, because they are exempted. But religious officials are exempted from having to report child sexual abuse if they learn of the crime during a confessional setting. That those bishops aren't responsible, that the Mormon church is responsible, and that this suit can't even go forward. Unbelievable. That happened in April. It was released in June. Um, it actually expands clergy privilege in Arizona beyond what the legislature intended with their own law. But it gives them carte blanche. Yep. Not report child sexual abuse. The church was being sued for a large amount of money, the Mormon church. Mm -hmm. Pay that money. They didn't think this was their responsibility. Nope. They did. This happened in 2023. Now, lots of people will say, oh, well, because of this case, those that hotline is much better now. And people, it, you know, get better help now. And they're able to report blah, blah, blah. No, they're not. Bullshit. That church won this case this year in mm -hmm. 2023 that they do not want to be held accountable for reporting child sexual abuse when reported mm -hmm. to their own clergy. Yep. 
Now, these cases have happened everywhere, of course. And oh, yeah. We particularly report on Mormon crime because mm-hmm. we are ex-Mormon and we still live in Mormon land and we want people to know what's happening here. 33 states protect clergy from reporting sexual abuse. And um, the Catholics, the Mormons, and the Jehovah's Witnesses in particular have all uh, sued to protect that right among Mm -hmm. other churches. But particularly, they are asking for permission to not have to report child sexual abuse of the children within their own churches being committed by members of their churches. That is what's happening. That is the Paul Adams case. It is just unfathomably disgusting. It is. And feel free to look it up if you want. There's tons of reporting on it in Arizona. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. People regularly tell me they don't think any of these things are actually true. Feel free to go look for yourself because they are. Uh Uh, The Mormon Church right now is in a lawsuit against its own insurance company because did you know that churches and other entities can have insurance to pay out for lawsuits when child sexual abuse is committed by someone within their clergy or in their employment. And right now there is a battle going on with the Mormon church because they've been sued for some sexual abuse that they did not report. And their insurance company is refusing to pay out on that policy because they say the Mormon church didn't do anything to protect the safety of children within their organization. Therefore, their policy is null and void. Uh There are so many stories like this going on. Oh, yeah. But this Paul Adams case is so sickening to me. Mm -hmm. The other thing that is so sickening is that this this poor girl who's got videos of her being molested out all over on the internet, Mm -hmm. those videos are still circulating. You bet they are. All over the world have been catching child predators because they have the videos of her. Wow. She will live with that for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. This is the shit we have going on. Now you tell me, even if it is part of confessional, which I think is complete bullshit. If you, if mm-hmm. you com- admit to anything, you are reported immediately. But how is that? How is that person's right to confessional protected? If that abuse is also going out on the internet. Right. That man was not keeping anything secret at all. Right. My other question was, how is it protected when one bishop who was told not to tell anyone told someone? Right. And made them a witness. I mean, how yeah. how was it still protected then? Yeah. And apparently because other people in the church that knew. These organizations, the Mormon church and many others, do not give a flying fuck about children. No. They don't. They don't care to protect children. They don't care to take responsibility for their own actions that put children at risk. They don't care. They don't give a shit. All they want to do is not have to pay out any money. And that's all this story can tell me. I see nothing here other than a church that protects its gold and doesn't give a shit about its own children. Absolutely. So I know I'm a bit bitter today, but I am. This yeah. case makes me physically ill. And don't let anybody tell you that that's something. See, I've been told several times recently, this doesn't really happen in the Mormon church anymore. It just used to. Bullshit. It's happening right now, today, mm-hmm. right now. 
and you know with the supreme court of arizona's permission yeah along with many other states so mm -hmm. please be aware of what your state laws are please be aware of what you can do to speak up in your own communities mm -hmm. because unless we keep telling these stories loudly and over and over again nothing's ever going to change things are not getting better they are getting and, worse and people taking your kids to church doesn't make them safe in fact oh. way too often it's making them unsafe that should be a place of trust but it isn't i mean did you Parents think that those two bishops were people that were safe for children no neither of those men had the moral fortitude themselves to go this is wrong and i'm going to stop the abuse of this child and call the police uh -huh. why what is it about them? Mm. Are they, are they uh, a part of the problem? Right. Right. I cannot imagine someone telling me something like that and me not immediately calling the police. Absolutely. I cannot in any situation possible. But what kind of church has a hotline for bishops for for information like this to get help that is answered by attorneys? Uh -huh. Tells you everything you need to know. Yes, it does. And with that, Katie, I'm going to kick it over to you for a DNA for the win. I'll be honest, we have reported on this case before, but the rabbit hole of it goes so much deeper. And there is a very interesting twist to it that many of you are going to be fascinated by. Oh doing it again. Maybe you didn't hear it last time anyway. It's fine. Mm. Talking about the murder of Roxanne Wood. Oh, yeah. Let's see. I do have a picture. Somewhere. This one always freaks me out because my one of my childhood uh, best friends in, in kindergarten was named Roxanne Wood. And it's not this Roxanne Wood, but every time I hear this case, that is just jarring to me. Uh, yeah, for sure. Well, I... Thought I had a picture of Roxanne. I guess I don't. Sorry about that. But let's let's move keep moving because this is just such an interesting one. All right. So Roxanne in on February 19th, 1987. Uh Roxanne Wood, or February, yeah, 18th. Roxanne and her husband had been bowling. Roxanne decided to come home a little sooner than her husband did. And they had were in separate cars at the bowling alley. So she came home. Her husband, Terry, came home only about 45 minutes later and found her in the kitchen in her nightgown. She had been sexually assaulted and had her throat slashed. And he called the police. And some things about the call made the police uh, suspicious of him. Unfortunately, um due to him being a uh, belligerent on the call with uh and I don't know why he was belligerent except for that you know with 911 except for that you know he was holding his dead wife in his arms and there was blood everywhere and anyway he kind of got off the wrong foot with the police immediately and they immediately started looking at him as a suspect okay and in fact uh his mother-in-law says that 
One of the detectives told him, I know it was you and I will not rest till I can prove it. Okay. Oh. Well, there was DNA at the scene, but this is 1987. So mm -hmm. all they could prove with that DNA is that it wasn't his. And the captain, the police captain at the time said that did not deter them at all towards trying to prove Terry's guilt because you could have semen inside of you that isn't the someone who killed you. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah. I they also, in their, yeah, in their investigations, overturned some stones and discovered that both of these uh, people had had extramarital affairs. They had had some real struggles in their marriage, uh, but had worked things out and were together. But at any rate, so they didn't have any leads other than Terry, and they never really could prove that Terry did a thing. I mean, he was at the bowling alley. He had an alibi. Mm -hmm. His DNA wasn't at the scene. You know, there was a lot of reasons to think it wasn't Terry, but he was always kind of under that as aspersion, you know. But anyway, so over the years, the police investigated this over and over and over and just had nothing really on the case. Nothing. No real uh, perps, just nothing to really go into. So... For a very long time, decades, nothing happened. But after three decades of police reports in this case, there was so much paperwork that anybody that picked up the case was so overwhelmed by a pile of paperwork that that was about all they saw. So a professor and a group of criminal justice students at Western Michigan University decided to do a class project and help up, help out. So they helped to catalog and sort through all of the information and get it into a digitized database for the police to work with. Mm -hmm. While they were doing that, it gave the police uh, a little new energy around that. And they thought maybe this was time to use that DNA. Now, the DNA was tiny. It was 3% of what is normally used. Oh, boy. The, the police uh, referred to it as the size of a gnat's eyebrow. <laughs> <laughs> they have this gnat's eyebrow of DNA, and they decide to hire a genealogy company to see if they could figure something out. So yeah. they a company called Identifiers. They worked for 10 months with the sample and came up with nothing. Oh and really started to feel like this was impossible. But the detective on the case was visiting with a genetic genealogist one day named Gabriella Vargas. Uh, she was also a consultant for Identifiers. Identifinders. Mm -hmm. And Gabriella said, ah, let me take a look at it. Maybe, maybe something, I can do something. She looked at it and she said, I can work with this. She said, this is a solvable case and I will solve it. And four days later, Gabriella had names to turn over to the police. Wow. She is a wonder. So she literally working from her kitchen on her laptop had this figured out. And 
she that's so cool yes so she ran the dna through ged match and had to go way back to a family tree one of the ancestors she found was from 1823 um on the other side the top ancestor was from 1797 wow then she started working forward trying to find the connecting point the married couple or the couple the union couple that would join all this dna together this person would have been so she found the union couple that uh, would have been born around 1920 so she said based on that we could presume they would have kids around 1940 maybe 1950 so sure. it would have to be one of their children mm -hmm. So she discovered that the couple had three sons. So she let the detectives know, and the detectives looked at those three sons, immediately eliminated two of them, and ding, 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 they had a winner on the third name. And this person had been involved in a ton of violent crimes, uh, sexually deviant Ooh. crimes, things such as that. He was currently not incarcerated, however. So they did what they do. They started tracking him. His name is Patrick Gillum. So Patrick Gillum was living just a few miles away when Roxanne Wood died. Oh my gosh. He'd been in trouble for drinking. He'd been in trouble to drug for drugs. He'd been in trouble for violent crimes, sex crimes. He'd been in all kinds of trouble. And in fact, they discovered he was in trouble in 1979 for attack, attacking a woman in her home and trying to sexually assault her. Oh, my God. Um, she managed to fight him off. And, but they, he was uh, in trouble. You know, he was charged with that one. And then we also know that he was involved in other crimes after this one. So he'd been caught and had been in prison. He went to prison for 14 years for what he did to for Maureen. Mm -hmm. And when he killed Roxanne Wood, he'd only been out of prison for about four months. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, he only served seven of his 14 years and was released early. Oh. Yep. We've been seeing a rash of that. Yep. Yep. Which really freaking sucks. So, at any rate, they put some investigators on him to get some DNA. He's a smoker. So, they're like, yeah, awesome. Because that's how you get DNA. That's an easy right. one because they always uh, flip their cigarettes out. Well, they saw him flip his truck out or his cigarette out of his truck. They gathered the cigarette. They sent it to the lab. It was not a match. And they're like, what? Wow. Wow. So then they were like, is there any chance it wasn't his cigarette? They said another car did pass by there before we were able to pick the cigarette up. So maybe. So they go back on surveillance. So this detective sees him uh, sitting out smoking on a bench in a public place. So he, a non-smoker, <laughs> walked into a gas station, bought a pack of smokes, Went and sat on this bench and sat and smoked with this guy. <laughs> and oh, wow. Visited with him a little bit, too. Just, you know, he was undercover, of course, and just chatted with him. And pretty soon he chucked that uh, cigarette button, walked away. 
And he had a glove in his pocket, so he grabbed the cigarette and wrapped it up in the glove and stuck it in his pocket, and it was a 100% match. Wow. So. Wow. They knew they had their guy. And they charged him. And he is in prison now and will be until he's at least 86 years old. Mm, God. So there was finally an answer. And it finally, finally took poor Terry off the hot plate. Man, he lived that all that time. People thinking that he killed her. Mm -hmm. That's really sad. The police actually called him in and told him that he was no longer a suspect. I mean, just recently. Wow. Yeah. Yikes. Yep. I mean, I'm glad that the, they found the real suspect, but Jesus, that's, mm -hmm. that's a long time to feel like you're still mm -hmm. being watched. I, but get this. In 1987, just a few months after Roxanne was murdered, a woman named Rose Carapel was standing on her lawn in South Bend and watering the lawn, and she heard this loud car coming down the street. And it was a blue El Camino, and it drove past, and she noticed it had a broken-out taillight. A few minutes later, she sees the same car coming back down the street, and... It just, something seemed wrong. He, she just thought something was up. By the time she got to the front door, he was chasing her to the house. Oh my God. And so rather than go in the house, she ran screaming down the street into a neighbor's house and ran into their house and called the police, but he escaped. She thought that he was going to assault her. He definitely was. Well, a few days later, they went out to dinner. And they see the same car in the parking lot. And her mom says, that's the car. Yeah, it's the car. So Rose's husband, Stan, is a retired Marine. So he's like, well, I'm all done with this. So her dad tells her to go call the police. When she gets back, her dad is holding a gun at the attacker and has him sitting on the ground. He came back to his car oh and dad pulled a gun on him, had him sitting on the ground. They look at his driver's license. His name is Patrick Gillum. Oh, my hell. They sat there and waited for the police to come, but they never did. And so eventually they finally let him leave and went to the South Bend Police Station and reported it. And the police didn't do anything with it, unfortunately. Oh, my God. So... It was decades later, of course, that when Rose sees the report of uh, Roxanne Woods' murder and this same guy, this Gillum guy, she decides to tell her story to the Michigan police. Yeah. Same guy. Same guy. Man. Same guy. So all of these crimes have kind of come together. He had a lifetime of committing these crimes. He sure did. But are you ready for the twist? Just recently, there was a trial, or, or sorry, a hearing for Brian Koberger. Mm -hmm. And there was an expert DNA witness who testified, who later ended up with FBI agents at her door talking to her about that testimony. Want to know her name? 
I think Gabriella Vargas. Wow. Yeah. Gabriella Vargas is a professional uh, DNA witness for the defense in Brian Kohlberger. Wow. So we're going to be that seeing more of her. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, Kohlberger's uh, attorney and Taylor is filing some things because she's very concerned about the fact that uh, perhaps some due process rights have been violated here in the FBI coming to her home to question her about uh, her work on the Kohlberger case after she had been in court. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's pretty suspect. Yeah. But anyway, what a weird way those two t cases tie together. They don't, it but uh, Gabriella Vargas does. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that is wild. Well, there you wow. go. And he, again, was alive for once and has been convicted and is in prison Ooh. now. So the world's a little safer We're, place with him. This is getting better. Things are happening faster. Mm-hmm. For sure. the DNA is the revolution, that's for sure. For sure. So that's what I've got. Wow. Well, thank you for that. That gives us a lot to think about. We will have to keep an eye on what happens then with Gabriella Vargas. Yeah. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that will wrap it up for us. Thank you very much, Katie. We will be back Wednesday night with our Wednesday night case updates live stream, as always. And, uh, you know, don't forget to like, subscribe, share, comment. Um, leave us a review anywhere that you can, depending on where you listen or watch. Anywhere that you can do those things, it helps us to grow, and we always appreciate it so very sure. much. And you know it. We are the True Crime Squad. Thanks for being here. Take care.